Hi and welcome to Sweetman Podcast. This is Simon Sweetman and this is episode 20. Um, pretty pleased to have made it that far. Um, this is a great episode. It's it's a chat with Jim Wilson. Now he's the um, owner and I guess mentor figure to his staff as well of Phantom Bill Stickers. Um, I would have probably wanted to talk to Jim anyway, uh, even if he didn't do that, because I've sort of got to know him over the last few years. Um, he's had fingers and pies in the music industry, shall we say, and, and creative industries in New Zealand. When I first got to know him, um, it was under the understanding that he had been a manager of the dance exponents in their early days, and I was writing my book on song, and I was I interviewed Jordan, but I wanted I wanted just a bit of colour around that, so. I remember messaging Jim and asking him for a quote and got a good one and he sent me a photo of him and Jordan and so we've sort of, I think a correspondence kind of started from there Uh, and then I've got to know him through the context of Phantom Bill stickers and you know some people don't like what they do and they think that they are a monopoly on posters but we also talk about um, you know his life, he's had an extraordinary life, I don't want to spoil it for you, I want you to listen to it because I think this is a, a really deep and interesting conversation but we do talk a little bit of shop and uh, what, what what I didn't know at the time uh, of doing this recording but has since been announced is that um, Phantom Bill Stickers is the sponsor primary sponsor this year for Poetry Day which is wonderful because we do talk in the podcast about just how much they've done for poetry in New Zealand I think more than anyone and I think Jim is some sort of patron saint of poetry in New Zealand um, and it's one of one of the many sort of great things that he's done. So yeah, buckle up for this. Um, just a reminder um, that you can get the podcast on iTunes and you can subscribe to it. Otherwise, you can get it um, from SoundCloud and of course the link's always there on my site off the tracks.co.nz. And thanks to Lafare for our coffee and Yeasty Boys for our beer. And thanks to you guys for listening. This is my chat, episode twenty, talking to Jim Wilson from Phantom Bill Stickers. Maybe he's not an alcoholic in Tennessee. <laughs> Maybe he's not an alcoholic. Is that where your sponsor is? My sponsor was. is dead. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking this morning, walking the hill, what I wanted to talk about, you know, some of the people who made a difference, big difference to me. Yeah. And um, I was very lucky to get a sponsor in Narcotics Anonymous in Tennessee in 1990 who worked with Phil Walden and who was Dickie Betts' personal manager in the Allman Brothers. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's a fucking job for you. Yeah. <laughs> and so my sponsor, um, well, he just made a big difference to my life, really. All that hard work for him prepared him for what he had to deal with with you. Well, I went to Tennessee and... Um, and my sponsor, whose name was Jean, um, had worked with Freddie Fender in in, in um, Texas in yeah. the 60s or 70s, and there's a fucking job for you too, <laughs> and, um, and was on the road with him and worked for record companies stocking up record shops in Texas in the 60s, and then when I met him, it was, which was around about 1989 no it must have been the 70s he was working on that but anyway he worked for Phil Walden and and he was on the road with the Allman Brothers and um, and I've seen Dickie Betts's the gold disc that he had which mm. was Dickie Betts's gold disc for Eat a Peach or whatever the fuck it was I don't really remember 
but um, you know that made a big difference to my life really so America's always well uh, as much as I've known you and obviously since back around then the late 80s early 90s America's loomed pretty large in your life did um, it was it was it a beacon before that or did you just sort of from right from when I was a kid growing up in Dunedin um you know, this could get very Freudian, but when I was a kid growing up in Dunedin, because um, I was born in 1951, so around about, um, I had a 48-star American flag by the time I was 10, you know, before Hawaii and Alaska joined yeah. the Union. Yeah. And American sailors used to go through Dunedin, and um, they'd go out with all the girls on the street, and, and including my sisters, I think. And um, you just sort of got an idea of this great big optimistic country as opposed to Dunedin, which yeah. was very quiet and nobody could say anything. And, and I think what Keith Richards said, it was closed or something. He went yeah. to Dunedin <laughs> and it was closed. Yeah. And so that if you're a kid and you've got a lot of fucking energy, which you don't know what to do with, you become intrigued by America, you know? And there's the huge like everything pop culture wise yeah. comes from America really yeah everything and certainly then it did like you know for you and your life it's a little bit a little bit different for me but not really like it's still the seed of it all seems to be America right when you're a music lover well I think if you buy Lucinda Williams new album you listen to it and you think you know how lucky to be born in Alabama and I think that my father used to like William Faulkner and he used to fucking talk like William Faulkner, can I swear? I yeah, mean, man, you know, that, you that, that biblical stuff yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, and, um, and, and I was the youngest in the family, you see. So when I was born, I had one sister who was 12, and I had a brother who was 14, and, and, and I had two other sisters who were 15 and 16 when I was born. And they kind of liked, you know, um, well, one of my sisters ran down the street after the Beatles when they came to New Zealand in 1963, but my brother liked Jerry Lee Lewis. And I think that's what made a big difference. My brother liked some of the bad boys, you know, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, people like that. Mm. And my brother used to take me out, and um, my uncles, um, 34 and 36 Ford V8, and we'd drive to Dunedin, to Moscow and back, and, you know, my brother was just kind of, um, you know, um, well, he's a really, really good guy, really generous, and, and um, but he was a kind of a, you know, he worked on earth-moving machinery, he worked on cranes. See that crane across the street? Mm, mm. My brother could have run that, and he did, you know, and... Um, you know, so anyway, he was interested in, in people like Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard and, and um, probably Bill Haley in the Comets. And, um, you know, and then my sisters, one of them ran down the street after the Beatles. I mean, what's going to happen? And I remember walking to school in Dunedin one day and hearing Paperback Writer, mm. you know. And, um, you know, those when you're a kid and, and, and you start to hear the Spencer Davis group and all those kind of things that make a big difference, you know. It lifts you up out of this tiny little world, right? Well, I was probably... Or lets you know that there's something else. 
Well, I think New Zealand enforced bipolar disease on people because if you grow up in Dunedin and, you know, the emphasis is on being very quiet and depressed and then all of a sudden somebody comes along with a great deal of excitement and, you, and your brain chemicals start running very high, yeah. you know. I'm interested in your use of past tense there. You're saying that it, it, New Zealand enforced, you don't think it still does? Oh, I think you've got a very synthetic New Zealand at the moment. Um, and uh, I think that, I mean, everybody knows when something genuine comes down the pike, don't they? And um, But New Zealand's very synthetic because it's, you know, um, got a, uh, it's, it's a businessman's republic. And, and in so, to some extent it had to do that too, to correct itself from the path that it was on. Mm-hmm. But what I like to say about Phantom Bill stickers is yep. that I bought it back in 1992 and so far I've survived three national governments and one Labour. <laughs> That's not fucking easy. No. So let's go back to, I guess, when you first had Phantom Bill stickers and just before that. So the company was founded in the... 80s 82 yeah yeah and when did you know you had a company or that it could be a company or did you not know that it could be a company until the second time I suppose in a way but but when did you know this was something that you were going to do and I'm talking the first time around uh well I was putting up posters for bands in the 60s yeah so how did that start like well, I got a, a my my parents moved to Christchurch after the first year of high school, where I I did Otago Boys High School for a year, and there were no girls there. Came to Christchurch, went to Linwood High School for two years, and there were lots of girls there, and it was fantastic. And um, and then I met a guy over the road who was a bass guitarist in a band, and uh, you know, and he was my best friend, and. Um, and when I was 16, I started running dances with him. We ran dances in Christchurch back at six o'clock closing, and we'd and we'd rent the Mount Pleasant Community Centre Hall, and we'd get 600 people in there every Saturday night, and 570 of them were in one end of the hall, were in one half of the hall, and in the other half of the hall were 30 epitaph riders, the local motorbike gang, and there'd be beer bottles flying around and stuff like that. And, and we used to have, when I was 16 or 17, we'd have 10 bouncers working for us. And one of the bouncers was a screw when I got to jail years later. Mm. Dr. Death, Mike Murray, I think his name was, Mike Murphy. And, and I was printing posters then through Fuller Brothers in Christchurch, which were all printed offset. And then I had a job at the Canterbury Education Board, and they had a Gestetner machine, so I was printing off flyers. And right from the very start, it just it's just a long way easier to go out and put up posters and distribute flyers than it is to deal with bands. And and then the punk revolution changed on the back of photocopying machines, I'm sure. Mm. And then I started Phantom Bill stickers in the early 80s because of all the bands I was bringing to Christchurch and I'd put up their posters for them. And then I started getting approached by the Royal New Zealand Ballet, the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra, all these people to put up their posters. And so I did, you know. And it became a company. When did, it, when did you need... Like, when did it become more than just you running around doing this? Well, in the early 80s, I had um, probably four or five people working for me putting up posters, and Mm. it was always a war. 
you know, everybody was covering everybody else and this just went on and, you know, and, and, and you know, you could say that your posters would survive for two hours if you did them at six o'clock in the morning, but you couldn't do them in daylight because people would complain. And I remember one time doing some posters down Colombo Street in Christchurch and it was actually about six o'clock at night and there used to be strips down the side of the farmer's store. Mm. I don't think New Zealand farmers survives now, does it? I'm not sure. But you used to do strips down the front of their store and somebody walked past me and they said, well, um, why don't you do that in the daylight? It was in the winter and it was dark at 6.30 at night. And I said to the person, because somebody from the social welfare department will see me. <laughs> and that's how it was, you know. Mm, mm. You had to get your posters finished by 7 o'clock in the morning before, mm. you know, people started driving around the streets and the bureaucrats and the, and the police and... You know, and all that kind of stuff. It was great fun. Well, people still do that now, right? But now it's, it's you and your crew that are taking them down in some in some cases. But there, are, so what's your conflict of interest there, or you, like philosophically, do you applaud these people that are up at? I fucking love them. Yeah, oh, they're up I at three in the morning putting up their bands. Well, posters or I mean, I, sometimes people accuse us of being a monopoly and stuff like that, and mm. um, and. But I started out like them, and I applaud them, and there's, you know, something like 150,000 square miles out there, so just go and put up your posters. See what happens. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't cover them. We Mm. lease our sites. Yeah, yeah. And and also, if they go onto our bollards, we try to accommodate them, and, you know, it's it just becomes this... um, I mean, we've spent lots of money and time trying to deal with bureaucrats all the poster bollards in Christchurch we paid for and and we put hundreds of thousands of dollars into poster bollards in Wellington and we're always trying to get more space to bring forward to give voice to the arts and that's what we do when did that kind of I guess philosophy or that idea of nurturing and supporting the arts become you know, tangible within Phantom Bill stickers. Like, I guess it's always been a driver for you personally mm-hmm. that, that that's one of the things you get from it and that you see that you're doing from the earliest days. That Literally putting up a poster is, is telling someone to go and see something, but beyond that, it's also a bit of artwork in its own right, you know, as well as what it advertises. But when did you sort of go, we're actually having an impact on people's lives and we can have an impact on people's lives and we can nurture and develop and promote uh, the idea of a cultural experience uh, well I, I think that's always been with me since I was a kid when very few people could have a voice you know when I was a kid I mean you have to remember when I was a kid radio um, didn't play local and um, and the Terry I think it was was towed out into the Hauraki Gulf in about 1965 or 66, yeah. and that made a big difference. But it was always about always about giving people their voice, and you know, and helping people to express themselves. and And I think the poetry thing now has made a big impact on people's lives. Um, it's it's just become more important for me as the years have gone past to help people express themselves. And and the thing that 
there are that sometimes at Phantom Bill stickers, um, I'm always interested in getting through to new people who are creating art and music in this country because most things it becomes a bureaucracy and then you lock out the new voices trying to come through and um, and you carry on in a sort of a self-satisfied way whereas I think that you know there's probably some guy in his bedroom in Dunedin right at this moment making music for himself who's going to blow away everything that exists now mm. or there's some new poet out there or some new filmmaker or somebody new who's got a fresh um, emphasis to bring to it you know when did poetry actual poetry printed on the page come into your life like as a reader was it did you how did you just you obviously have a a great grasp of it, a fondness of it, and uh, continue to not only support it in terms of putting it up on, um, which we'll talk more about, about, hopefully about putting it up on walls, but like just for you, when did you feel you discovered it, and was it some eureka moment to see that breaking of the rules, that the words weren't all in one line? And um, oh, I think it's probably always been there. I've always read a lot, and... Um, um, but I mean, you know, what happened was that I went through two incredibly brutal interferon treatments for hepatitis C, and at the time I had a really bad accountant who was, I think he was trying to bankrupt me, and that's potentially libelous, but I think he probably wanted the company for himself, and I had a, a, a lawyer who was manic, and... Um, and so I was on interferon and I started to read Janet Frame and uh, again and I think that um, you know that uh, I mean everybody knows when something real comes down the pike and Janet Frame was always real and um, and so I wanted to take that out to the world really that feeling of something real and I think that you know I can't remember the first poem poster that that we put up but I remember that Chris Knox was in amongst the first four or five people that we put up poetry posters for mm. of that poem becoming something other well yeah. there's no way that anybody can stand on a street corner and read that without being deeply affected by it and and then it became I mean shit I don't even know a good poem from a bad one I don't know what enjambment is there's some kind of a thing that happens at <laughs> the end of the line called enjambment or something I don't know, but I know what affects me, and um, we did a poem by, uh, song lyrics by um, Dave Dobbin, and um, you know, and I, I just... Um, well those are the two things that I like about what I feel is your approach to putting these poems up, is that, apart from anything else, is that it's your choice and your selection and based on how a poem should be sort of received, which is an emotional connection to it or feeling from it a reaction yeah. and the other thing that's I guess connected to that is this validity you're giving songwriters that their words mean something by not by not um, interpreting it as oh we also put up song lyrics you yeah. look at song lyrics and go that's a poem and you yeah. put it up on the wall for people to read because people can read Chris Knox or Dave Dobbin just as they can read Janet Frame or James K. Baxter and, and it one has come from the other 
Well, in, in some sense. Well, I hate bureaucracies in any way, shape or form. So therefore, sometimes I have an incredible problem with academics and people teaching creative writing. Yeah. And um, so that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think Jack Kerouac went anywhere to learn how to write a poem or learn how to, to write. And, um, you know, I like people having a raw grasp of things, but talking from the heart, you yeah. know, and... Um, you know, we've just followed on down that line. I mean, you know, the other thing, and I don't know, I'm probably going across purposes here, but I saw the greatest age in New Zealand music, which I think was in the 80s, and then I've seen a lot of those guys end up with, number one, they've got no money, um, and they might have huge mm. talent, but mm. New Zealand is so small. Mm. But back then, it was $3 a minute to call Auckland from Christchurch, you see. And, and um, everybody who toured the South Island, you know, they were all hiding in their vans to get across the ferry because they couldn't afford for everybody to pay. Mm. And I've seen a lot of those guys end up with no money. So I've been very anxious to give a lot of those people a voice or to try to yeah. from back then. And, and so some of these people had, uh, well, a lot of them had um, hits. Too, you know that oh, was fantastic. you know success and well, in, in some in some way that that perhaps people that are doing a little bit better out of music now didn't even have like in terms of their reach they have memorable songs that well there still was some I I don't know I I think about this a lot there was something about the fact that none of them were being paid, played on radio which actually made them better yeah because they were striving for something. But, I mean, if you look at people like um, Shane Carter, Peter Jeffries, all those people, fantastic talent, you see. Mm. But, but, you know, you would think to yourself now, well, you know, there should be a statue in, a par- in the park to some of these people, but there's not. Mm. And, and so even in the cafe reader, you know, we've published a lot of those kind of people. I mean, Bill Doreen is a fantastic poet, mm. right? Mm. And... Um, but, you know, being a fantastic poet in New Zealand means that most probably you're living on the dole. And um, unless you've got an academic teaching post, I mean, they'll tell you that's the same in America. Yeah. But there's much more opportunities in America for writers, um, you know? Yeah. I mean, one of the new guys that everybody loves in American poetry is that guy, what's his name, Ben Lerner from New York City, and, he, and he's got that book called 1004 or something and it's really bloody good mm. really fantastic but you know he signed to a publisher out of New York and he's got a reach he's got the New York Times just down the street so if he becomes their darling they're going to write a review that yeah. that praises them to high heaven and now in the days of the internet somebody in New Zealand is going to buy that book based on that review because they've seen it on Facebook and off he goes mm. You know, but there's a lot of people in Dunedin at the moment who, um, you know, deserve uh, a lot of that respect, money, and um, acclaim. You mm, know, mm. you mentioned I want to um, I want to change tax here just because you mentioned um, going to jail, and yeah. I wanted to um, find out how that intersects with you. Um, leaving Phantom Bill Sickers and then coming back to it and buying it again. So you sold the company. 
Now I went to jail in the 70s. Oh, so that predates it, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I went to jail in the 70s. Um, when I was 19, I had a nightclub in Christchurch. Um, this is 1970. And uh, it was the scene. And Barry Coburn had it before me. And he was split ends as manager. And then I think he went to Nashville. And he's big news there. And... Um, and when I was 19, I bought to Christchurch the human instinct, the calculated risk, the in-betweens, the underdogs, all these people. And, um, and I went broke. I didn't declare bankruptcy, but I went broke. And then there was a guy from in a Dunedin band that I bought up who was a junkie. So I became a junkie, and it was beat generation stuff. I had a great time with my mates. And um, and then I went to jail for chemist burglaries, and in jail, the two greatest guitarists at Christchurch, well, two of the three greatest guitarists that Christchurch had ever produced were in there. Mm. Foff, who was um, who's Scribe's uncle, I think, if he's even still alive, and Arab, and these guys were great guitarists. And, and jail, um, just... When I got out of jail, somebody took me to a punk rock gig out at Mount Pleasant again at the Mount Pleasant Community Centre Hall and I saw the voxels and that just blew me away. And then I had a mate who asked me to come and work for him and help him book pubs and, and then I saw the swingers and then I saw Toy Love and the rest is history. I had this very brief um, encounter with um, <coughs> uh, Anton, Anton from Brian, Brian Jonestown Massacre, the lead singer. Uh, didn't interview him but met him after the show and often that's better than actually sitting and interviewing someone because he was yeah. very candid and he was in inside about three or four minutes he told me about 25 minutes worth of stories and information and one of them was um, and this just happened recently like this was just the end of last year but one, one, of, the, one of the things he said was you know you always hear about junkiedom and junkie stories as if it's awful no one wants to tell you that there's something quite magical about it but uh, because the stories were always told about down and outers and people that lose everything through doing it but he goes you know when I was doing heroin I had a fantastic time and it's not a story people like to hear but he goes it's the truth because I had record company money behind me and he was saying this as a person who's clean and sober and you know doesn't drink anything stronger than ginger beer now but so he was able to to celebrate that in a sense because part of that is him celebrating getting offered I guess but do you have sort of a, a viewpoint on that and a story around that in terms oh, of it was fantastic times because you hinted at that that's why oh, that's what made me think of it fantastic times I, I you know um my best mates that I did chemist burglaries with and, and are almost all universally dead um I mean, there's something very magical about, you know, I mean, there's just something very magical about dropping your car off over one side of town because you're hot with the cops and then somebody picks you up in another car and then you've got gas cutting gear in another location and then you drive 200 miles through the night to get a chemist in Dunedin and then you drive back. And I mean, remembering at that time too, in Christchurch, um, Phil Claremont was painting, Tony Thomason was painting, I've shot up in Phil Claremont's bathroom. I mean, what more are you going to ask for? You know, <laughs> but boredom, but boredom is fueling a lot of that too, right? Like the the oh, desire to do that, like what you're saying. That's that's of that's a, and and it's sad that you you could even compare them, but that's a an escapism that people now get 
from seeing that their photo has been liked on Facebook, right, in a very minute oh, way. It's real. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it broke down all the bureaucratic structures again, which is what I talk about a lot. Mm. But, I mean, you know, um, Jack Kurak set the world free. I mean, he wrote in a way that nobody else wrote, and William Burroughs as well. And, and then, around about that time, I mean, you're listening to I'm Waiting for the Man for yeah. the very first time in the early 70s, and you're reading fucking Abby Hoffman, I mean, what's mm. going to happen? Mm, mm. And and we all had a fantastic time. But at the end of it, you know, you end up by yourself and you don't like that very much because your mates are ripping you off and, and then, you know, the cops are coming around and beating you up and then, you know, I mean, all kinds of things happen. And, you know, and it gets very grotesque in the end. The imagery is always around how, how did you drag yourself out of that? Or how did you drag yourself through that? Yeah. So how did you drag yourself out of that or through that? I was in jail in Paparoa and I went to Paparoa and I, I got two lots of 18 months for chemist burglaries and I was um, convicted and discharged on possession of five narcotics including heroin because there used to be heroin in the chemist shop safes at that stage. Because New Zealand was the last country in the world to stop prescribing diacetylmorphine hydrochloride for pain, so in 1956. So if you got an old chemist shop, sometimes in the safe they'd have heroin. But anyway, I was in jail and, and I had a friend bringing me in um, drugs, um, seconal, and I got caught with them in Rolleston and I was given a couple of months in the punishment block at Paparoa, six weeks. And then they found out they could only sentence me to a month and um, that was a visiting magistrate came in and, and oversaw this thing and I was in the pound and I was suicidal and they sent a justice department shrink down to see me. This is true man and he and I said to him, his name was Dave Riley and I said to him, Jesus Dave I feel like committing suicide in the pound here. The two screws who ran the pound were Vietnam vets, I mean fantastic guys but very tough, I said Jesus Dave I feel like committing suicide and this, but there's nothing in here to do it with and he said use your teeth and that turned me around and then I started seeing him when I got out of jail and he was very enamoured of Wilhelm Reich, of Reichian kind of therapy um, and um, I had a session with him that um, totally changed my life. I began to see how angry I was, um, I began to explore why I felt afraid, stuff like that, and it turned my life around. So what sort of years this, what, what sort of times this? Oh, that would have been 70, 78, 79, um, mm -hmm. and uh, at the same time I saw the voxels playing I'm Waiting for the Man or whatever they were doing. And um, then I got a job working for these guys who were booking venues in Christchurch, but they were basically drug dealers and um, good people, but drug dealers nonetheless. And um, my best mate, Mike Jones, um, and I'm, I wouldn't want to say anything disparaging about him, but um, they didn't really have any idea of a new kind of music that was evolving and, and I could see it and, and it was all based around the fact that you had to write your own material. Punk had exhausted itself by about 1980, 1981 and now there was this thing coming out of England called New Wave 
but also there was a very strong emphasis in New Zealand on being able to write your own material. And that's good and that's bad. You had the knobs on one hand and yeah. that was very bad. And then you had the screaming memes and that was very good. Yeah. You know? So the Gladstone is around this time, a little bit after, getting towards that? Yeah, and I lived next door to Roger Shepard. Yeah. And and one day I went to Dunedin and, and somebody told me to go and have a look at this band and they were practising in a hall. Mem- from memory, it was up Roslyn in Dunedin and I walked in and saw the clean and that just fucking changed my life again and it's sending shivers up and down my spine saying that. And then, you know... I needed a band to support an Auckland band called the Whiz Kids, which was the band before Blam Blam Blam, and John Halverson was doing my artwork, so I asked him to form a band on about a, on about the Thursday, and he formed the Gordons mm. to play that Saturday night, and um, you know, so it was a very very magical time, um, and and there were just a lot of things happened. And um, when do you when do you discover things like? Or when I say discover, I mean you personally discover things like the dance exponents and that that sort of era starting to come in too, right? Um, well, I mean the thing about Flying Nun, and I think Roger Shepard um, is, uh, I think Flying Nun made all the difference to New Zealand, and so mm. did Propeller, and so did Pagan, and and so did. Um, you know, Brian Staff's label, Mm. I think they did AK-79. But I think what immediately started to happen with some of those Dunedin bands is that they took themselves a bit too seriously. And it was all about mystique, and it was all about Velvet Underground type stuff, Mm. and Nick Cave type stuff, and wearing black, and stuff like that. And I walked in one night at the Hillsborough, and there was a support band on called The Dance Exponents, and they were just having fun and it was very important that they're from outside of Christchurch because if they had mates for too long in Christchurch they would have ended up wearing black and hanging around the university bookshop Mm. you know and listening to how Tony Peake was telling them to play Um, but the dance exponents just had fun and they were very uh, infectious and um, and and Jordan's name, I think, is Jordan Harding Willis Luck or something like that. Jordan Willis Harding Luck, I think. And and I could see that with that name and with his songs, um, nothing could stop them. Not even the New Zealand music industry. <laughs> was there one then? There was really, but um, it was yeah, only just that was really the start of it as something serious. You know, no disrespect to the like all the stuff in the 60s was still out of a show band ethos really wasn't it, it you know even well some really good stuff happened <coughs> in Dunedin and I think yeah. good music has always come from Dunedin, from Dunedin and um, Eddie Chin made a huge difference to Dunedin and his clubs and I think the Chin family still have um, the Crown Hotel and Sammy's I think Sammy's is closing but that was a vital thing yeah, I remember in the early 80s, you could never get anybody anybody in a band to sign a contract because they thought that was sort of something to do with a capitalist conspiracy. Yeah. And I was just always trying to get bands on stage all the time. And I mean, you know, I booked the Hillsborough, the Gladstone, the Star and Garter, Doodles Nightclub, and I always had a lot of bands on the road. And... Um, you know, and it, and it was very, very exciting times. I mean, Wild West, you know, mm. 
And, um, but the other thing that's interesting about the dance exponents in Jordan is, um, at that time, like when I was when I was writing the book and talking to all these people, all of the flying nun guys of that time had the utmost respect for Jordan as a, as a songwriter and and for the band as a band that put across these great songs because, and I don't know if that's them looking back now, but you know they all like they all sort of talked about how he you know in some way they sort of aspired to that or were jealous of that or just or not even jealous just impressed by it because they at the heart of it they wanted to write good songs too and and a lot of them did yeah but some of them were very very deeply jealous of this guy putting together these very well, smart you said pop it, songs deeply jealous yeah you said it um you know the Chills were a fantastic band, and one of my top ten gigs of all time would be The Chills in about 1987. Um, but I mean, I think some of those bands had a propensity to doom and gloom and, and played with their back to the audience and that kind of thing, and that's all right if it works, hell, you know. But I think Jordan and them just came along and, and they engaged people at such a kind of a primal level and got them dancing and moving. And Jordan's a marvellously innocent kind of person. I mean, he's he's not up himself to any kind of degree. And in that band, the makeup of that band, Steve Cowan was the one that I connected with, who was the, one of the guitarists who died. Yeah. And it was just a... I mean, how could you stop a band? I mean, I think I've told this story before, probably not publicly, but we... We the first thing I did with dance exponents was sent them out of town for a long time because they were playing the Aranui on a residency basis and it wasn't working and probably because the songs were original and the Aranui was where cover bands mainly played but I sent them to the old mill in Timbro and I remember going down there to see them play this gig and Steve Cowan who was the loveliest guy in the world who was the guitarist who died was standing beside me at the door and I was checking the girl taking the money and Steve Cowan was standing beside me and he was pissing into the into the neck of a long bottle long neck bottle of beer so he didn't have to leave the door. I mean, you know, there were people lining up to pay to get into the gig and he's standing there pissing into a bottle of beer. Well, you know, if the Rolling Stones can make it on pissing in a gas station, you know mm. <laughs> You know, I mean, just such an infectious band. Yeah, you know? yeah. So you're having a lot to do with bands at this time. You're yeah. managing, you're promoting, yeah. Um, venue running, yeah. And Phantom Billstick is sort of bubbles up in and around all of that. Phantom Billstickers was called Phantom Billstickers by Ian Darzell, who was the graphic designer at Rip It Up at one stage, and was on the road with Toy Love before that. And um, but I just like doing plain and simple stuff like that. I mean, yeah. If you're sitting at a desk all day talking to bands and talking to trying to, I mean, you know, people were flying into Christchurch for gigs and taking on their their um, backline as excess baggage or trying to get across the ferry, all that kind of thing. It just it just gets the dirty water off your chest if you can go out and put up some posters. Yeah, yeah. So, we, what happens that makes you walk away from Phantom? the first time um, well, the only because time. I started Wilson's Army Navy and um, that seemed like a better thing to do or just you needed a change um, you were sick of bands and dealing with bands what was it probably because I thought that Ronald Reagan was so hilarious <laughs> and um, and David Longy 
to his credit, was opening up music. No, no, it really came about because I saw David Bowie at QE2 Park in 1978. I mean, fuck, man. And he was wearing a US Air Force MA1 jacket. Yeah. And I wanted a US Air Force MA1 jacket. Yeah. And so... Um, However many years later... Yeah, yeah. I mean, David Bowie sticks in your head, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, as and then... As and everyone's found out this year, that's right. And then, you know, I started to think, well, okay, let's bring in a few of these and see if we can sell them. And then Zippo Lighters. You know, I, I got the franchise for Zippo Lighters in New Zealand. And, um, and then, you know, I started bringing in Dick Driver, hmm. Richard Driver, was in a band that I managed called the Hip Singles, and he arrived back from Sydney at one stage, no, from Melbourne, with a new band, and he was wearing a, a US Air Force M65 jacket, the, the Vietnam issue combat jacket, and I started to think, well, I could sell them too. And then I started looking into customs regulations, and then I started Wilson's Army Navy. So you started that while you still had Phantom, or you'd, you'd walked away? Yeah. Um, Obviously, is there an overlap? Is what I'm trying yeah, to establish yeah, I had here. A, yeah, I had a young guy working for me in the Army Navy stores who went out and put the posters up over at, at night. Yeah. Um, and and I was still promoting for some promoters gigs that were coming to town. Mm. Um, Doug Hood was bringing through some really classy acts mm. um, like Nico and um, and the Pokes, and so I stayed on and and did some promoting and then I'd have these guys going out and doing posters and then it became too much and I met this really nice young guy from Invercargill called John Greenfield and his total thing in life was that he wanted to meet the Jesus and Mary Chain and he met them in Christchurch in 1987 you know because they came to town and I, I might have been involved I can't remember but Anyway, he ended up driving for them, and he bought Phantom Bill stickers off me, him and another guy called Tony Smith. And um, and they took over Phantom Bill stickers in about 1986. And so you're selling army surplus gear? Yeah. And how long do you do that for, and how does that Well, it was a hit record, and that's a problem, yeah. dealing yeah. with success. Yeah. So that when I in initially did it, um, the... The um, the budget that we'd worked out is that I had to turn over two thousand five hundred dollars a week to break even, and I think it did three thousand dollars the first day. Yeah. And success is a dreadful thing to come to terms with. And then a woman came along whose husband was on a methadone script, and and she had extra methadone to sell. And I mean, there's no other way of looking at it, really. I took on too much, and I became destructive. And um, you know, and and I got embroiled in a bitter argument with customs about whether clothing, um, the customs tariff that I bought the clothing in under, was that it, if it showed signs of appreciable wear, it was free of um, duty and license. And um, and that customs tariff was invented for people bringing rags into the country. But the, the thing was, was that some of the guys, this is in the times of NATO, and some of the guys in Germany, for instance, conscription was still there, and they joined the army for six months. But if they joined in the summer, they may not ever have worn their um, 
Winter Parker and I was buying these things and bringing them in and I went right to the top to the Minister of Customs and the Minister of Customs looked at the stuff I was trying to bring in and he said it was Trevor to clean and he said some bastard at Customs has gone fucking crazy you shouldn't have any problem with this <laughs> but it's a bureaucratic structure mm. and I had more problems not less yeah <laughs> And I, and I thought that the way to overcome it was to argue with bureaucracy. Bob Jones might be able to do it, but I can't. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, um, and eventually the company went into liquidation, which caused a lot of heartache, you know, not only to myself, mm-hmm. but to a lot of other people, mm. you know? So what's your immediate fallout from that or response to that? What happens to you? What do you go and do? I had the last crack at being a junkie, and I'd been predominantly clean for about 10 years before that. I had the last crack at being a junkie, and then um, in 1989, two of my sisters died of cancer within a month of each other. And, I mean, I couldn't do anything about that, and um, so I got clean. I went to live in Tennessee, and I got clean. You went to Tennessee to get clean, to have a change of scene, to get away from New Zealand, to escape some demons. I had, I had a couple of um, people in Christchurch who took me to um, a Narcotics Anonymous meeting, and, um, and that made a huge difference to my life, and, and one of them particularly is still uh, probably one of my very best friends, well he is one of my very best friends, and, and he took me to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting, and then I moved to Tennessee, and I started, I stayed there for a year, got an extension on my visa, and um, I started going to up to five meetings a day for a year. And you could go to a seven o'clock meeting, you could go to a, a noon meeting, you could go to a five o'clock meeting, a seven o'clock meeting, and an eight o'clock meeting at sometimes. And then, you know, my sponsor was involved in the music scene, and um, and then he introduced me to Phil Walden. He used to work for Phil Walden, and Phil Walden, um, you know, was clean. And um, and I had a few sessions with Phil Walden, and I realised that these guys could put the Allman Brothers into the New Orleans Superdome in front of 70,000 people easier than I could put a band into the into a fucking crappy pub down the city mall in Christchurch. Mm. Mm. So I started looking at myself. <laughs> Do you... Um, what, are the, what are the sort of constants in your life at this point? It feels like music, obviously, is this constant you've carried through and... I would say like a love of of words of of of, yeah. of reading, whether it's poetry or f- novels or maybe some philosophy, yeah. all sorts of things. You sort of carry those with you right through, um, and they in turn. Oh, literature has become uh, has come to mean um, you know a long way more to me than it ever has, and sometimes if I'm having a bad day, then you know. Read a single line of literature, it'll just change my whole total perspective. And I mean, I mean at the moment, last week I was reading um, Jim Harrison's new book. He's an American poet that we've published on a on a poetry poster. But I mean, he's got a book called The Ancient Minstrel, and and the first part of it is is a novella about his life, really. 120 pages, and and that's just made me feel completely different about everything. 
So when did you, was it through this process of being clean, getting clean in, in America that, when did you sort of turn your hand to any kind of writing or has that been more recent than that? No, I always did it since I was a kid. I mean, when I was a kid... Just putting things down. When I was a kid in Dunedin, I mean, my father changed my life and that when I was nine years old, he bought me a typewriter. Because I was sick a lot in Dunedin when I was a kid. I had a, a shadow on a lung and they were talking about taking out a lung and then I had pneumonia and bronchitis and stuff like that. And then I had glasses, so you're going to get called four eyes and you're going to be off school for a while, so you have to learn to fight. But my father also bought me a typewriter and I remember... You know, even back in Dunedin, um, I used to produce a top 20 um, for other kids in the class that I'd print out on that typewriter using carbon paper. Yeah. And, you know, Spencer Davis might have been top of that for three months in a row. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah, know. yeah. But, I mean, words have always meant something to me. Yeah. And mainly because of my father. I mean, it's really quite Freudian because my old man you know, um, really knew what good writing was and, um, and you know, and he encouraged that. I yeah. mean, he didn't know that he was doing it, I don't think, quite as much as he did. But as you get older, you begin to see how these things affect you, you know. You mentioned, um, I mean, you have mentioned them, but you mentioned to me before we started recording that you had thought you were going to talk a bit about your brother. Yeah. So what what sort of roles, plural, did he play in your life? I think um, I feel sad for people who don't have an older brother and I think that I've tried to be an older brother for a few people around the place. But my brother, when I was a kid, um, you know, he was 14 when I was born and he worked on Benmore when they were building Lake Benmore and he was a rugby player for the Pirates Rugby Football Club in Dunedin and he was just a hard working kind of a farm boy because my parents worked on a farm and had to move into the city because they couldn't afford to have three kids at high school on farm wages. You know, my father drove a tractor, my mother cooked for the crew on Bell Station which is up the pig route in Dunedin, Shag Valley Station on the, on the road through Palmerston which is another reason why I like Janet Frame, you see, it's yeah, all that yeah, area. Yeah, yeah. But um, my brother, when I was sick and I was a kid, he would take me out in my uncle's Ford V8 and, and we would pass every car on the road going out to Mosgill and I'd jump up and down in the seat and, um, and then he'd stop and let them pass us and then he'd start up again and pass them. And um, one day, I remember, he put that V8 um, into the side of a bus in the exchange in Dunedin and he just broke down laughing and um, oh that's just fantastic you know my uncle owned the cars but my uncle had been at Al Alamein and it had shell shock and he lived with, with us when I was a kid and he put down the deposit for my parents house because they didn't have the money and so my uncle Les lived with us and he was shell-shocked and couldn't speak, couldn't understand really what he was saying but he treated me very well too but my brother died when I was 14 and um, and that really blew our family apart but he he just had a big effect on me I mean a brother is a fantastic thing so he was, yeah 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 no I have and increasingly I guess yeah. you know you become more aware of it 
with time or whatever you can become more aware of what it means yeah um, <clears throat> so he was 28 he yeah he was 28 and we were living in Christchurch by then I was 14 and I remember the cop coming to the door and um, my mother became hysterical and I, I, this is a dreadful thing I was watching TV and 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 I didn't register what had just happened I really didn't and I turned the monkeys up on the TV, it was 6 o'clock at night or 6.30, yeah. TV1, there was only one station then, I think, and I turned the monkeys up and my father said, have some respect. And um, <clears throat> the next day we drove to Dunedin for the funeral, he was killed on a road gang out at Ravensbourne, he was driving the tractor and they needed somebody to take this tractor up this rise after lunchtime, and I think he'd been drinking, they had beers at lunchtime or something, and the tractor tipped back on him. And, and they had a photograph on the on the front page of the Otago Daily Times, which we picked up in Omaru on the way to Dunedin, and, and it showed, I think from memory, it showed his leg out the side of the tractor or something like that. I mean, they had, anyway, yeah. they had this photo of this tractor upside down, and my brother was underneath it. And um, it's just had a big effect on my life, really. Your sisters, did they help you put together some more like more of a picture of him um, well one of them immediately started calling me her big brother um, but I mean this is Dunedin and this is at a time where people didn't talk about their feelings and um, which may have been a good thing actually to just repress it and carry on I don't know but yeah my sisters one of my sisters was always really, really good to me. The one who was 17 when I was born, really, really good to me. And the other one was alcoholic, who was in Cherry Farm and had various shock treatments, and she was a beautiful person too, you know. And um, and and the other one, who's still alive to this day, um, you know, would have just shrugged and said, oh, carry on. And um, I don't know, between the whole lot of them, I guess I carried on, you know. I'm just thinking when you're suicidal in jail and the advice is to use your teeth, yeah. and when you're um, uh, re relapsing or revisiting, probably is the word, revisiting junkiedom because it's a choice as much as anything. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> do you, and then you, and then you're in Tennessee getting clean, do you sort of think of your brother as not having the second and third and fourth chances that you've that you're allowed to give yourself um yeah um I mean maybe not right at the time but say now reflecting on it I think my life would have been completely different if I hadn't had a brother like that to turn to and and some of my best mates, I mean we've been like brothers and the last 10 years or 15 years I've lost my two best mates too from um, from probably being junkies, I mean they were both junkies and you know... Residual effects you mean? Like. Well one of them my mother died in 1999 and then my best mate at that time um, died early in 2000 and he had, he'd lodged a piece of chalk and heart valve from a dirty shot of morphine or something yeah. like that. Anyway, he had a heart valve that was expanding and, and he died from that. 
on the phone to me, I was talking to him on the phone and he had a heart attack and, and I sort of thought to myself, shit, what did I say? But I went racing around to his place and he was mm. dead on his bed, wow. on the bed, and that was in 2000. And then uh, Mike Jones, who was the bass guitarist that I met when I was 14 when we moved to Christchurch, he died of um, liver disease around about six years ago. And, and you know, those are like brothers too. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, Even though we may not have got on all yeah, the yeah, time. Yeah, 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 of course. You know? Yeah, well, what brothers do or what friends do. Well, really, I, I, you know? I sometimes being depressed at times I've thought to myself that I was a universally bad person yeah. and, um, and and then I could see that I didn't get on with these people all the time but my brothers the the people were, who died but then you think to yourself shit those bonds were tight you know yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Um, so you formed lots of special kind of bonds in America right like you yeah and how long were you there sort of to begin with was it a long I was there for a year, and um, and um, I worked on a farm in Tennessee for a guy who was a colonel in the U.S. Army who was in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he had a huge effect on my life. And you know, and I was trying to get the methadone out of my system because I was on a high dose of methadone before I knocked it on the head, and um, and I was sweating all day on his farm. And uh, whenever I got bloody really uppity or I couldn't stand it anymore, he'd throw me the keys to the gun room and I'd take a shotgun down to the creek and just let off some steam. And I felt like a man. It was very important that I felt like a man. And, um, you know, I just got rid of all the frustration of trying to get clean out of my system. Mm. And then I came back to New Zealand I mean, they, you know, I was like a Mexican. I was getting paid under the table, and mm. if it rained, I didn't get paid. And if I went to him and I said, well, where's my pay? He said, well, you didn't work yesterday. I said, yeah, well, it rained. How could I? And, you know, and how about paying me for it anyway? He said, no. Yeah. You know, do you like welfare? And, I, and, and, you know, but then they paid for me to get my extension on my visa, and I still could then. And I came home to New Zealand feeling really good. I mean, you know, after working on a farm for a year, I felt really good. And um, I immediately applied to go back to New Zealand, and that's when problems with my visa came up, that I couldn't go back. And then I spent 20 years, basically... Because of the conviction. Yeah, and then I spent 20 years, basically, trying to fight that. Yeah. In 2006, I tried to fly into San Francisco, and I was turned back at the airport... And I met a really nice guy at Homeland Security, and he said, well, this is what you should do. And I tried for a waiver of ineligibility before, which is what I have to have, having convictions, and it didn't work. But I went home and I tried again, and then lo and behold, they gave me a short-term visa, which was three months, I think. And I went back, and I went back to Tennessee, and I lived in Tennessee, and started the process of, of getting on top again, you know? Mm. So this is mid-90s, early, um, early to mid-90s? No, no, I didn't get back to Tennessee to about 2006. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Well, maybe 2008, but, but by then I'd been through my mother's death and two courses of interfering and a bad accountant and a bad lawyer and, 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 and 
then what Phantom Bill stickers went through was the Christchurch earthquake, which was devastating for us, you know, and for everybody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's go back to, so let's, that's when I said early 90s, what I mean is, so you, you come back from America. Yeah. And you're clean and yeah. enthused yeah. and fresh and feeling vital yeah. and not self-loathing. And you buy no, the self-loathing was always <laughs> right. That's the one consistent. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've all got that. It yeah. just sort of hides from time yeah. to time, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, um, what happened was I came back and they and they said that I couldn't get a visa to America yeah. and then the next day I got involved in a street fight in Christchurch and then I ended up doing periodic detention as a result of that and then in 1992 I had a relapse just for a day and it was on home bake I think and and and, and I pulled myself to my senses because what happened was on that one day relapse, and sometimes you can see things really clear, you know, Pulp Fiction and alcoholics seeing things, yeah, yeah. you know, really clear. And on that one day relapse, somebody suggested that we start baking home bake in my kitchen. I thought it was a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the next day I bought Phantom Bill stickers back and started work because not... So working. you didn't do that? No, <laughs> yeah, no yeah. shit, no. Yeah. No. no, but I mean so that you didn't... To so that you didn't enable that I that other idea. No, no, an alcoholic. What do they call it? That thing in Pulp Fiction. Moment of clarity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I had a moment of clarity. Yeah. And I remember standing in my kitchen at my little house in Hastings Street in Christchurch, having this relapse, being with my mates, great fun, you know, fantastic fun. Yeah. And and you know, I'm shooting fucking home bake. And, and this guy on my right hand shoulder says, what about if we start making um, home bake here? And he was the guy I knew who, how to make home bake. And, um, you know, and I thought, Jesus, you know? And um, so I bought back Phantom Bill stickers and I started to go to meetings again. And I got a sponsor in Christchurch as well as the one in Tennessee and I carried on, you know? So Phantom, had been left in good hands or it had to be rebuilt somewhat? It had to be rebuilt. Yeah. Um, yeah, John Greenfield, who had it, um, worked in a record shop and he had an office in Christchurch um, and he died driving back from the big day out where he was working as a stagehand in Auckland. He, he came up here, I don't know, if, might have been the same one that Gerald Dwyer died at or something. And he came up here and he's driving back to the South Island and he fell asleep at the wheel or, or I've heard that the woman beside him in the car distracted him. I know the guy who was in the back of the car and he rolled the car and died. Um, but I think it's fair to say that he was drawn in about a dozen different directions mm. and um, and one of them was that he worked part-time or he worked in Echo Records in Christchurch and um, so that he was split in a number of different directions. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I bought it back off him in 1992 and I started on the road ahead and he um, worked at Echo Records and um, we had a good relationship and when he died, you know, it was a big shock. 
as was Gerald Dwyer died. Yeah. And um, what can you say? So what 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 happens across the nineties for you? I worked very. You worked hard, and you um, put Phantom towards the position that it's in in this decade. I guess. I started a, a billboard company as well with a young guy who approached me actually, and um, and it became over a period of about five or ten years, five years probably, the biggest billboard company in Christchurch, Phantom Outdoor Advertising, and um, mostly it was about bureaucrats, and I was being hauled before the Christchurch City Council for putting posters in the streets and. Um, and I lobbied them to put in poster bollards and then eventually I got them in in place and about 2001 or 2002 I spent probably half a million dollars or more on putting poster bollards into Christchurch and I'd gotten that money out of the sale of my shares in Phantom Outdoor Advertising and I put that into poster bollards and, um, and then I bought the business off Gerald Dwyer's business, the Wellington business and uh, then I started lobbying the council there, there, and at that time they had armor guard driving around taking down illegally placed um, posters, so we fought that as well. Mostly the 90s for me were about fighting bureaucracy yeah. and meetings before full city council, full city councils in Christchurch. And what I started to notice was the tremendous amount of difference between me standing up and extolling a case for a legalised postering system and more space for posters. Incredible difference between me doing that and, you know, a property developer standing up and wanting to put in a, a 25-storey building or a bar or something like that. Yeah. They were just treated completely differently. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, I fought that for a long time. Yeah. That kind of thing. So, take us through to now. So, you, well, the Christchurch earthquake yeah. was, as you said, obviously devastating for everyone, and, and people around the country felt it. But yeah. you know, and 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 were connected to it. But yeah. you were there, and Phantom was there. Phantom, that was its base. Um, we, I was living in America, um, and the one thing that I'd learned out of Wilson's Army Navy was to try and build things one brick on top of the other instead of, at Wilson's Army Navy I was importing from 50, 50 different suppliers all around the world and there'd be wolf strikes and there'd be all this kind of thing mm. and problems at customs so I'd learn how to build a good team I knew that it was essential to build a team and when the earthquake happened I was walking down the street in Lambertville New Jersey and a friend of mine walked up and said, hey man, there's just been a big earthquake in Christchurch, you know, where I was from. And I didn't have Wi-Fi or anything like that. And, and I had a cell phone of a type, and I don't even know if I had international access. Yeah. Well, I could get it somehow. Yeah. And I called Jamie, who manages the business now, and, and, it, and the earthquake had just happened a half an hour beforehand. And... Um, and they were able to tell me what was going on, that people couldn't get home in Christchurch, that it was taking them five or six hours drive to get home in Christchurch, that, that there were big holes in the street, that buildings were down, that people were dying, and stuff like that. And, um, and 
and I guess it was, it, well it was, very painful. And then I knew people who were killed in that earthquake. The guy who did our maintenance for us in Christchurch, a really great guy, um, who built our fence sites. He was on the bus going down Colombo Street. This guy had done all the maintenance on my house in Christchurch. I used to watch All Blacks games with him. Um, and he died. And, um, you know, um, anyway, it, it sent a big shudder through us. And I remember ringing Jamie. Remember, this is about having a good team. Mm. A few days later, and I s and he was running the company from a laptop computer out at his parents-in-law's place out at Rangiora. And I said to him, "Can you hack this, mate? You know?" And he said, "Piece of cake." Yeah. And it immediately took you know. And he'd been with you for a little bit then. He'd been with me um, since, he's been with me about 17 years yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he'd been with me seven or eight years or 10 years by yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, um, 11, 12 years by then, he said piece of cake. And he was running the business from a laptop computer out at Rangiora. And, um, and it immediately took tens of thousands of dollars of revenue out of the business. And I think that we probably only had 30 people working for us then and now we've got 50. And I came back that August and we moved the business to Auckland. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I I always, you know, look at Auckland as it's like a, a Christchurch band trying to break Auckland and now I think we've broken Auckland. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're here now. Yeah. So what happens next for Phantom? What's what happened next to yeah, Phantom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's, well, what's what's happening well I was probably very very depressed yeah and I'd gotten married to Callie who's an American and um, she came back with me and we started straightening up Phantom and shifting into Auckland and, and I don't care what anybody else says about postering in New Zealand it's always been a case of you know get 50 posters from the promoter throw 30 away put up 20 the promoter yells at you you take his money off him if you can you sit on the door with him take the risk with him and and maybe he'll pay you and maybe you won't, he won't but now we've got contracts in place and and now we've got a computer system that can show you what you book and now we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars over these last few years on lawyers and bureaucrats going to city council hearings and that but now it's in Auckland as well yeah yeah and it's and it's basically it's basically been putting in structure whilst trying to keep the heart of the company. Remember the young guy in Dunedin in a bedroom making music? Yeah, yeah. You know, who might be the next Hamish Kilgow or David Kilgow or Martin Phillips mm. or somebody like that. And then you've, you've carried on with the post, uh, the poetry stuff that's kind of gotten bigger, grown, yeah. meant that you've put on events, sponsored yeah. events like Poetry I'm the Day. only man in this country who's been physically mm. escorted off the ground at Sing Sing Prison in upstate New York for trying to put up a Jeffrey Papara Holman poem poster. That's true. Mm. I'm the only man in this country who sat down with Johnny Winters in his tour bus in New Hope, Pennsylvania and has read him a uh, uh, James K. Baxter poem and he said at the end of that man that cat can write you know mm. and 
you know, we've put up poem posters outside Parchman Farm in Mississippi where you can't stop for a mile either side of the, the jail, but I did, because mm. I like risk. And a whole well, lot it takes you back to when yeah. you were a kid doing it for the first time, right? When well, you behavioural were... problem. Yeah. I mean, that's what postering in New Zealand and has largely been about. And it, but we've put in structures. It's now. slightly more positive than robbing chemists. Yeah, yeah. Too. Yeah, yeah. And, and <laughs> all yeah. round for your health as well as for other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you try, I mean, you look at your life, you see that you've done some strange and bad stuff, perhaps. You've treated some people fairly poorly, you try to correct. You and know, especially as you get older. Yeah, yeah. And so out of out of that, out of the poetry sort of thing that you're doing, that you're, I, I would say, um, nicely fixated with grew the cafe reader yeah. in, in some sense which yeah. is let's talk about that for a little bit so that's um, getting creeping towards a dozen issues yeah. and the aim is largely the same there isn't it giving people a voice creating something that people can you know read that's more meaningful than just a flyer but at the same time can be carried off like a flyer can be found like a flyer in a cafe in a pub somewhere but it has some substance to it and you've you've attracted some pretty great writing and some pretty big name people to that and, and it's we tried to um but it's sort of open to everyone largely isn't it and that and that if yeah. someone um catches your eye or someone you know communicates the right thing they don't have to be a big name to be in there it can be I well I've got mates of mine yeah. who have got something to say that I mean, if you look at New Zealand, and, and this is right up your alley because you're an outsider trying to break in, if you look at New Zealand... I'm, I'm arguably trying to stay out, yeah. <laughs> which has been a well, hugely career-limiting... <laughs> if you look at New Zealand music, the yeah. same five people have written it up, mm, maybe the mm, skin of them, mm. and they've written it up, mm. how New Zealand music started and, and how it developed and stuff like that. There's five or ten of these people, and, um, you know, and it's not fresh... Mm. And, you know, what the cafe reader is more about is inclusiveness. Yeah. And, and about how, you see, you know, I watch the awards and I see who gets the awards and stuff like that. But for my business, for my, and to my mind, the people who created New Zealand music, a lot of them are sitting down in Christchurch now and nobody remembers their name. And they built mm. it as much as anybody. And so that's the thing of the cafe, reader. You try and give voice to people who are not the usual suspects. Yeah, and the other thing with it is that, I think, as a reader of it, is that, you know, equal importance or, the, you know, the same amount of um, opportunity is there for a poem, a song lyric, a story, a, a photograph, yeah. uh, a diary entry. They, they all potentially deserve to be on the page there if they're good enough. Or if they if they mean something, if they strike. Yeah, if they mean something is the key word. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to have been to um, the writer's school at Victoria University to actually get into the cafe reader. You can be somebody from Invercargill who's mm. got a heart. But you can be someone who's been through that writing school at Victoria University well, and have a heart too. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, 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 yeah. I really like what Bill Manhai did. Yeah. You know, I think that in the old days I used to think that when they were setting all these things up, including reality TV, 
I used to think that it was all a bunch of crap and, and teaching somebody to write was a bunch of crap and teaching them how to play guitar was a bunch of crap. But I turned on TV last night and there's some famous international people in New Zealand teaching people how to play music or something and I thought that's a great thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, teaching people how to express themselves is a great thing. So when do you step away from this and have you, have you got that plan in the back of your mind or in an action where you're going to actually step down and let this company exist without you or is, are you this company no I want to keep total control yeah no I um, uh, I think that I'm doing the best work these last five years that I've done since the Hillsborough I've got my own book to write I'm 22 chapters in I've even re had some reasonably famous people read it and they're saying that it's great and they've given me liner notes. I've got another 15 chapters to polish off and, and finish. Uh, David Eagleton is editing it and doing a great job and um, I think me and Kelly are looking to go and live in New Jersey um, this American summer, June, July, August to try and put the finishing touches to it. But like everybody else, I'm intrigued with how you distribute something like that. If you go to yeah. a major publisher like Random House, you just become part of their list, and you may or may not be lucky. Yeah, um, it's like going to a major record company. It's almost a kiss of death. Yeah, they might. Except in Lord's case, she's done really well. Yeah, and they might tweet about your book being released once a month. That's right. Yeah. I mean, well, that comes from at one stage in the 80s, I worked for CBS Records, it was at that stage, and um, and CBS had the swingers, and uh, and I think that I charted It Ain't What You Dance, It's The Way You Dance It, myself, by selling 200 copies into um, EMI Colombo in Christchurch, and then Roy Montgomery probably put down that he sold 150 because here he is, he's bought 200 copies of It Ain't What You Dance, the follow-up, I think, the Counting the Beat, and he has to do something to try and sell them, so it charts. Um, but at the same time, you know, we had, you know, Boston, say, or Journey, or Willie Nelson was just playing Christchurch, and Billy Joel, and these people took the emphasis of the whole company because they're selling lots of copies and, and Walter Yetnikoff is ringing up from New York yelling at the guy who manages CBS New Zealand. You know, of course he is, or Tommy Matola or whoever it was. Yeah, yeah. So you can get ploughed under when you're with a major because they don't care. Yeah. That's why Dave Dobbin does so well, I think. He's got a great manager who I think knows the ins and outs of how that stuff works. You know? Yeah, well, they've... they've um done the the industry side of it and now they're re-establishing themselves as completely independent that's right but they've got all of that knowledge from being within the system that's exactly so right and that, um, you know I mean I've seen a lot of Christchurch bands in the 80s really good Christchurch bands get signed to a major record label and then I just knew it was the kiss of death and they'd come to me and they'd say oh my single's number one in Germany or somewhere and I just knew it was the kiss of death yeah. so really Phantom Billstickers in a, in a perfect world should really become Phantom Publishing I'd love and, to and, and it would publish posters still but it would publish writing and it could potentially 
publish or distribute people's albums. I want to be the first person in this country to play the puddle on a digital billboard in downtown Auckland or a digital poster bollard in mm. downtown Auckland. I mean, I think, um, you know, New Zealand's changing so fast that we're losing the old culture. And when I look at poets like Peter Olds and Jeff Cochran from Wellington, mm. and I look at the music of people like Rick Bryant, um, these people have done such a, a good job for our culture that they, they really deserve better than what they've got. I mean, you know, living in America, every so often I'd pick up you know, a New Yorker and I'd see a Janet Frame short story and that's fantastic. I mean, I remember being in America picking up the New Yorker one week and there was Gorses Not People, one of his short stories. Mm. Fantastic mm. short story. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of other people in New Zealand who have got really fantastic voices who deserve to be heard. You know? This country's got a whole story that's not going to be told you know, you pick up the Auckland Herald, there's a 300 page, you know, a property section in it, and there's a 450 page food section, you know, and there's very little real journalism in a lot of these magazines. Yeah, yeah, it's gone. Yeah. Well, it's gone because it doesn't sell. It That's doesn't mean probably anything. right. That's it doesn't mean right. anything, and they can't pay anyone to do it. That's probably right. So they just, you know, now they you get what you pay for, right? You get what you're prepared well, to put up with. Well, you know, if you picked up the Sunday Times yesterday, they will tell you they were number one in the polls and the latest research that's just been um, released that the Sunday Times is the most read Sunday paper in New Zealand. But then you pick up the Auckland Herald, which I think is owned by that other multinational company, yeah. and they tell you the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. And, then, and then there's a society section, you know, that's just bloody... Broken hearted, you know. So you get to work again on a Monday and go, um, <clears throat> you know, how can we impact the week? How can we put some colour in people's lives and some put some voices out there? And that must be um, a good feeling to head to work with. That, in on some sense, you're actually putting things out there that can give colour to people's lives, give people information too. Um. Well, I think I'm uh, probably a lot of the time frustrated that we can't do more. For me to take the cafe reader where I think it needs to go, I'd probably have to dedicate four or five more staff to it. And um, at the moment, the commercial advertising that we do pays for it, and so it's a funky little thing. But I would really like to see it become a long way um, stronger. And, you know, we put every issue, we print about 12,000 copies. And this new one has got as a banner on the front page, Made in New Zealand, because we distribute about 2,000 copies through America or mm. other points around the world. Mm. And, um, you know, if, if you look at the people from New Zealand who have made it overseas, you know, Crowded House, you know, got played on radio, fantastic, love them for it, you know. Um, although my heart is with Phil Judd, right? Same. <laughs> if, you, if you look at uh, Flight of the Concords, got yep. picked up by a major American, you know, um, television program, um, Peter Jackson, 
Peter Jackson used to come to my Army Navy store in the 80s and borrow stuff to make his movies off. Yeah. And now I couldn't get an appointment with him. Yeah. You know, but if you look at those guys, they've made it. But what about Bill Doreen? And what about, you know, The Clean, really? Yeah. And and Buster Stiggs is on the cover of the next Capo Reader. And, and, I mean, you couldn't have seen a better band than The Swingers in this country. Well, not, not to... Um, <clears throat> discredit or speak ill of those three international exa- you know, internationally achieving examples you name, but they're not really selling New Zealand culture, are they? They're selling a version of New Zealand culture that can be prettied up and sold. The, the, the real gritty stuff that gives heart to you and me and a lot of other people just doesn't sell, can't sell. And and so a clean a clean fake version of it, which is which is Crowded House compared to Split Ends and it's Flight of the Concords making a sort of parody of the Kiwi accent and the and the you know, the the quirkiness and the quaintness and it's Peter Jackson forgetting how to include a storyline in a film. Um, when his early films used to have heart Yeah, you lose control. I think yeah. when he did those early movies in the eighties, what was it, one called Brain Dead? Yeah. Was yeah. Those were pretty intense things, and then he just became this person. Well, they were fun though too. They, yeah. they had fun. They, you know, they had. Was mad. Yeah, exactly. He and, was mad. And and delighted to show people that, and now it's yeah. concealed. He was mad because and very intense, and he was going to break out, and he broke out to the extent that somebody came along and gave him millions of dollars. And I think Neil Finn too can still tour England and sell out venues because. Oh. Those songs are really good. They are good songs. Yeah, they are good songs. And and he still puts on a good show, and he's very good. those Flight of the Concord guys can tour through New Zealand, but they're not Billy T. James, are they? No. Yeah. No, it's it's one track. Yeah, yeah. So, that I mean, if you take those people like Billy T. James, I mean, he really broke the game, really, didn't he? And if you... Barry Crump broke the game, and, um, you know, Phil Judd broke the game. I mean... Chris Knox broke the game right open, and and what I heard was that when Chris had that stroke, he was just starting to make money. You yeah. know, and it was spread yeah. amongst the number of things that he did: yeah, yeah. cartoons, film reviews, yeah. making his music, and he making could go videos. and play New York yeah. and get five hundred or a thousand people. Those yeah. guys broke the game. Yeah. Um, and opened it up. Well, you know, probably I'm interested in keeping it open. You know. And um, so that, you know, during the time I live in America, and of course I lived there about six months of the year now, um, you know, I mean, the last time I lived in America, I lived in uh, New Hope, Pennsylvania, actually, in a, in a old Victorian villa, which was a backpacker's kind of thing. And, um, and the woman who worked in the kitchen loved flying nun. Mm. She couldn't believe that this hand shot Roger Shepard's hand you know and um, she'd be talking about the chills and she'd be talking about you know the clean and she'd be talking about the villains and sneaky feelings and and, the, and you know and then I'd be telling her about Peter Jeffries perhaps or something like that Is that hand going to hold a copy of Roger Shepard's book and read it? I like Roger Shepard yeah. and we communicate and um, I've no idea how he's going to treat me but I lived next to him when it all happened and I think that Roger Shepard sees from Aranui in Christchurch, which is a relatively poor, bloody section of town, 
and I think that Roger Shepard, he worked at EMI Colombo Street, and no, he worked for Dal Richards at the Record Factory, and um, and I think he's got great ears because he heard something in that music that I didn't. Yeah, yeah. I that saw lots of, them. That lots of people didn't. Yeah. Yeah, I saw them, <clears throat> and so visually I knew this was a great band, but I never heard what Roger did, yeah. and a whole lot of others like that, you know, um, Simon Greek had magical ears, mm. heard them, and then imagined that he could do something with them. Well, you know, the problem is they're all on the doll, so they're going to badger you all day. <laughs> <laughs> Does that seem like a good place to leave it, or is there... No, do we no, need to keep... I'm, are you just warming up? Yeah, I'm just warming up. Yeah, I'll start <laughs> throwing things around the room soon. <laughs>